Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, If you have a Bible, it would be a great help to me if you could open it to uh, that passage we had read for us earlier. That's Romans chapter 8 and uh, from verse uh, 18 onwards. That's on page 1135, if that's that's helpful for you. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and uh, from verse 13. 18 even. Uh, I don't know if you, the name uh, Glenn Chambers means anything to you uh, at all. Uh, Glenn Chambers uh, uh, was a young man uh, who had a dream of serving God overseas. It's a dream, a dream he'd had from a very, very young age, uh, grown up with it, uh, been longing to serve God uh, in some kind of overseas missionary capacity. Uh, he had, uh, obviously, as you have to do, you go through years of schooling first, uh, followed by uh, college. Uh, in the States. Then uh, he did a, a graduate degree at a Bible college. Uh, finally, he got to realise his dream. He was uh, accepted by a missionary organisation. Uh, he was going out to South America to uh, work for a missions organisation uh, in Ecuador. Uh, sadly, he never arrived. He got on a plane uh, to fly to Ecuador. Uh, en route, uh, his flight crashed in a mountain in, uh, in Colombia, when it was going over Colombia, uh, killing everybody on board. Why? Why did God allow that to happen? Young man, committed to Christ, committed to serving him, not just in a comfy scenario in the States, uh, but overseas as well. He'd done all that training, seemingly for nothing. How could God allow that to happen? Uh, He's a Christian. If Christians really are God's precious children, why is life so painful? Why is it so hard? Why does suffering happen? Uh, No less a writer than John Stott has said this. Suffering is the single biggest challenge to the Christian faith. Uh, Why? Because so often it appears to be entirely random and completely unfair. Nobody's immune to it. Every single one of us sitting here will be carrying some sort of pain uh, of some level. All of us know what it's like to live in a broken world. And yet that question remains, why? Why is life like this? For us, of all people, why do uh, bad things happen to good people? Is the title of a book I've got on my shelves. Great question. Uh, well, if you've been following uh, our series in Romans over the last few weeks, you'll know that Paul has been sketching out for us the wonderful privileges of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, he's told us that we've been set free from the penalty of sin that we should deserve, because Jesus has done it all. He's died for us on the cross. Uh, more than that, we've been adopted into God's family uh, to enjoy all the blessings that Jesus' death has secured for us and that God uh, has in store for us. It could hardly get any better than that. And yet, as we got to the end of last week's uh, section, reading that we we had last week, there there was a sort of cloud that came over the the sunny skies of uh, Romans chapter 8. Paul alluded in verse 17 to the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Verse 17 says, If indeed we share in his sufferings, Christ's sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory... 
uh, we as Christians in some way participate in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, For all the wonder of being saved from sin, adopted into the family of God, still we live in a broken world, daily encountering sorrow, pain and suffering and disappointments. How should we understand this? I think uh, Paul in this section gives us two reasons uh, why we suffer, which helps us uh, to understand it and to, uh, to, uh, to sort of comprehend what's going on. Uh, firstly, Paul says that we suffer because suffering and glory is the experience of God's creation. We suffer because suffering and glory is the experience of God's creation. Uh, there was a poet long ago who said that joy and pain are woven fine, And Paul would echo those words entirely. Uh, In the tapestry of God, the threads of sorrow are always interwoven with the threads of glory. Uh, It was true for the Lord Jesus, and it is true uh, for his friends and for the world. And yet Paul tells us that when we take a step back, we can start to see that actually there's no comparison whatsoever. It's a bold statement, isn't it? Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we will be revealed in us. Uh, the suffering that we experience now in this life cannot even begin to be compared with the weight of glory that awaits. Perhaps we're tempted to think Paul's just being a bit flippant. Maybe he's overstating it. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a bold statement, isn't it, to say that? Uh, Paul is not being flippant or trivial. He's not kind of trying to pretend that suffering doesn't really matter or it's not important or in some ways it doesn't really hurt. It's not sort of of stiff upper lip, it's all right, really, it's fine. It's not like that. Uh, Paul writes as somebody who knows what it is to suffer. You just have to read through Acts or through any of his letters and there's always that undercurrent of pain and suffering. And yet still... Despite all that he'd experienced, still he could honestly say that whatever we face in this life, uh, it will fade in comparison to the radiance of the glory that will be revealed in us. What is true uh, for Christians, he says, is also true uh, for creation as a whole. Uh, Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Uh, creation currently is waiting eagerly for that moment when God will draw back the curtain and reveal his children. Uh, that word that Paul uses there, uh, sort of a sent- which our, trans- our Bible's translated as uh, waiting in eager expectation, it, it kind of has the idea of somebody balancing on tiptoes, you know, kind of craning their, their, their necks to sort of catch a glimpse of something. Uh, when uh, I was, uh, I was uh, younger, um, we used to go on holiday often to, uh, down to the West Country, and we would always kind of have an argument, me and my siblings, to see who was the first person who could catch a glimpse of the sea as uh, we, uh, we kind of drew near to it. We'd be sort of craning our necks to try and catch a glimpse of the sea over on the horizon. And it's a similar kind of idea. It's that sense of straining to see something and catch a glimpse of it. Uh, Paul says that the whole of creation is straining to catch a glimpse of the glory that is to be revealed uh, in us. Well, why should creation be waiting like that? Why is it straining to see? Well, Paul says it's because of creation's uh, past. It's because of something that happened in the past. Uh, verse 20. Uh, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Uh, it's been subjected to frustration. 
Uh, Ever since humanity uh, rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden uh, and sin entered the world, uh, the good world that God created uh, was spoiled. Uh, Humanity has been set against God and against itself, and death and decay uh, have entered and become the norm. Uh, Paul describes it here as frustration. Uh, The word is sort of a sense of emptiness. Uh, Life without God, or life against God, when we've turned our back on him, ultimately is empty. It's unsatisfying. It will never live up to what we hope uh, it will. And that, says Paul, is the outworking of God's righteous judgment on sin. Uh, This didn't happen because creation wanted it. It wasn't happened by its own choice. But it happened by the will of the one who subjected it. It was part of God's plan that that should happen. It's part of his righteous judgment on human sin. And yet, even in the darkness of the fall, there's a glimmer of brightness. Why? Because God subjected creation to judgment in hope, verse 20 at the end of it. Uh, In hope. Uh, In hope that one day creation would be set free from its uh, bondage to death and decay and brought into that glorious liberty of God's children, verse 21. Uh, For the moment, death and decay are the harsh facts of life on earth. Strawberries go rotten. Uh, Botox and anti-wrinkle creams just delay the inevitable, ultimately. That's the pattern of the world. We get older, we decay. Everything does. Nothing lasts forever. But the future plan of God is not death or decay. It's freedom, as creation is fully renewed to share in the glory of God and his renewed people. I wonder if it's worth pausing just for a moment to consider to what extent our view of the future conforms uh, with the view that Paul uh, has here. Uh, I think if you talk to many Christians uh, about uh, sort of what uh, what Paul means by by hope and kind of our future hope, uh, you'd probably get this picture of some kind of pie in the sky, this sort of uh, kind of airy-fairy spiritual experience, uh, sort of spiritual realm, kind of fluffy clouds floating around, that sort of idea. Uh, You know what I mean. it's very common. It's certainly common, actually, among non-Christians, and it's true, actually, within the church as well. And yet the Bible is very clear that the future hope of the Christian is very, very different to that. It's not pie in the sky when you die. Uh, the Bible tells us that God's creation, creation as we know it, will be renewed fully, and we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. If you want to read more about it, uh, the Apostle John gives an amazing picture of where the world is heading at the end of his uh, revelation. Uh, The perfect order that was ruined at the fall will be completely restored. We don't know exactly what this means. Uh, Will it mean that there's cricket in heaven? I don't know. I hope so. (laughs) Who knows? It's pointless to speculate. Uh, There's enough vicars who like cricket, so I'm hopeful. Uh, I don't know. We don't know what the details will look like, and we shouldn't try and speculate. Uh, But we can be sure that God's plan is a plan of hope. It is in hope, and it will be a physical reality for us to enjoy. Uh, There really will be a day when there'll be no more hankies, hospitals, or hearses, as I uh, heard a preacher once put it. God will renew his creation in entirety. 
Uh, But for the moment, creation groans, as if in labour, says Paul. And one day that hope uh, will be brought to birth. What might this mean uh, for us uh, in, in Norwich today? Let me make a few suggestions. I think, first of all, it's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? Uh, We should be encouraged by the plan that God has uh, for his world and for his creation. Uh, In recent years, there's been lots of noise made about uh, the possibility of kind of uh, ecological catastrophe as climate change uh, gets a grip on us. Uh, And I think that's that's right. Rightly, this has drawn attention to the need to steward the world uh, properly. Uh, We haven't always done a great job of that. We've misused the world's resources, uh, and that has consequences, and we should be rightly aware of that. And yet I think these verses are a challenge to us, uh, because Paul is clear here that ultimately we're not the ones who are in control of the destiny of this planet. God is. It's not our job to be renewing creation, because we can't. Creation actually isn't looking for our renewing of it. It's looking ahead to the time when God will renew it. Uh, God is the one who has the planet's future in his hands. Uh, we should be very careful about implying that the situation is otherwise. Uh, that's not to say that we shouldn't be careful stewards of it. Of course we should. Uh, but we shouldn't allow, uh, put ourselves in a place that actually the Bible gives us no right to be. Uh, God is in control, and his plan is to renew creation in its entirety. Uh, for the moment, there will be struggle. There will always be people who are misusing the planet's resources. There's always going to be problems. There's going to be ecological disasters. Of course there will be. And yet God is the one who's in control. Uh, That's an encouragement and a challenge for us. But secondly, one thing I've been reflecting on this week as I've been reading this is that we should be encouraged that if God is going to renew his creation, then that really does mean that creation is good. Sounds a bit of a silly thing to say, doesn't it? Creation is good. God told us it was good back in the Garden of Eden. And yet so often I think Christians uh, can have this kind of quite negative attitude uh, to creation. I, I confess when I think when I was younger I did. I grew up in a, in a sort of Christian context where I was always being encouraged to kind of look ahead to future heavenly glories. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. We're right to be looking forward to, uh, to, uh, to, to what, what is to come. And yet if creation is going to be renewed, then that implies that it's good. It's great to enjoy it. It's great, isn't it, to enjoy a sunny day, to enjoy a nice landscape. Inevitably, it's not as good as it might be. Landscapes erode, don't they? Uh, we get uh, uh, food goes off. Uh, all these kind of things. Creation is not as good as it could be. And yet still it is good. And we should enjoy it, even in its fallenness, and be longing for that day when God is going to restore it to its original condition. And it will be better than, be, than anything we could possibly imagine. Uh, we suffer, says Paul, because creation suffers. It's marred by suffering now, but it will see glory uh, in the future. Secondly, uh, Paul says uh, that we suffer uh, because suffering and glory is also the experience of God's church. Suffering and glory is also the experience of God's church. Uh, Paul says that with a groaning creation, there also cries a groaning church. As creation groans, so too do we, as the people of God, uh, find ourselves groaning. And yet there is a difference. Uh, Because the groans of the people of God are not the groans of pain. Uh, But they are, says Paul, the groans of a people who have the first fruits uh, of the Spirit. Verses 22 to 23, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. 
And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. It's very apt that we're reading this at Pentecost, uh, the, the feast that was the forerunner of Pentecost in the Jewish calendar uh, was the Feast of Weeks, uh, where the Jewish people uh, would celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. Uh, we are the people of God who have the Holy Spirit living inside us, if we're Christians, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that means we have the first fruits of the new creation harvest. It doesn't mean that we've kind of got part of the Holy Spirit and there's loads more to come. That's not quite what Paul means. But he says that the presence of the Spirit living inside us is, in some sense, a foretaste of the new creation that is to come. It's the first fruits, as it were, of the harvest that will ultimately be ushered in when the Lord Jesus returns. (coughs) And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that this isn't just wishful thinking, Uh, It's not sort of uh, just uh, something that we think we hope might happen one day. Uh, It is indeed our guarantee that God will indeed renew us in in resurrection bodies and reveal in full our adoption as his sons. Uh, Paul says, verse uh, 24, For in this hope we were saved. Uh, That uh, phrase that's translated, we were saved, is uh, an aorist in the Greek, that's one of the Greek tenses, and it tells you that that is something that is definite. There's no doubt about it. It's happened. It's a certainty. Paul says uh, that we can have no doubt. Uh, we have been saved. Uh, we can know that because, because of Jesus dying for us. Uh, we've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. Uh, sin doesn't have that hold on us that it once did. Uh, we don't need to fear God's judgment in the future, because Jesus has taken uh, the judgment for us. Uh, We're not guilty in God's sight because of the Lord Jesus. And he is certain that because of what Jesus has achieved for us, because of the plan of God and the purposes of God, because we have the Spirit living inside us, one day we can be certain that we will enjoy full free life with God in the new creation and in our new bodies. But yet, at the moment... Paul says, we wait. We wait patiently, verse 25. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We don't quite have it yet. We're not there just yet. It's the mark of a trusting heart to wait patiently for what is promised. I don't know about you, but I'm not a person who is particularly patient. I'm always wanting uh, something to happen quickly, and it's probably uh, it's true of lots of us, particularly in our, in, our, in our age, when we can get things seemingly on tap all the time. Uh, sometimes I'm impatient because I know it's good, and I just want it now. But I wonder how much uh, sometimes our impatience is actually a lack of trust. We don't really believe that we're going to get uh, what, uh, what is promised to us. Paul tells us that because God has given us the assurance of a new uh, creation, new renewed uh, bodies by his words and by his spirit, uh, we can wait patiently for his plan to be accomplished. Uh, we don't have to worry that it's not going to happen. We know that what God has promised really will come true. We can't see it for the moment, but one day it will be fully revealed. An illustration I heard a preacher once give, which helped me to understand this, uh, was an illustration from history. Uh, at the end of the First World War, the, um, the, the warring nations uh, signed an armistice agreement, which we remember on, the, on Armistice Day. Uh, they signed it at five o'clock in the morning in a forest in the middle of France. Uh, 
And yet still, it didn't come into effect until 11 a.m. later that same day. Uh, The soldiers knew that hope was coming. Peace was going to come in just a few hours. And yet there was still that time, wasn't there, in the sort of in-between period between when uh, peace had been uh, signed and when it came into full reality. Uh, We know that one day suffering will end. It's been secured by Jesus in his death and resurrection. It's God's plan and purpose, and it will happen. And yet, for the moment, we wait. Uh, We wait both patiently uh, as we submit to God's sovereign timing, and yet also, Paul says, we wait eagerly, verse 23, as we long for what we know will be glorious, and we know how good it will be. We wait in... uh, Patiently, patiently eager, I suppose. It seems an oxymoron, doesn't it? Uh, how, are, how hard it is to balance that. Uh, it seems to me that so many uh, Christians overemphasize one or the other. Uh, so you get some Christians who are so eager for the kind of new creation, the resurrection day, that they kind of seem to imply uh, that we can and should know now complete freedom uh, from pain and sickness. I remember hearing a preacher basically say that from the front. Uh, this idea that Christians should know complete freedom from pain and sickness. Uh, One day I think that will be so, but not for the moment. It's kind of almost being too eager uh, to claim uh, what is going to happen now. But on the other hand, I think perhaps this is a problem we have more at Holy Trinity. Uh, We're very good at kind of being stoic and being patient, but we're not necessarily eagerly awaiting uh, what is to come. Uh, We are perhaps patient, we're waiting uh, for, uh, for that day, we're sort of stiff upper lips, as life is difficult. And yet there's none of that resurrection joy and hope, which is the Christian's right. It is our right, because that is the future uh, that the Bible holds out for us. And Paul tells us that we are to wait with patient eagerness. We are to be patient. Life is hard, it's difficult. We know it will be. We shouldn't be surprised. And yet at the same time, we should be eager, longing for that day when Jesus will return and creation will be renewed. Well, into that situation, Paul brings us just one final further encouragement. And it's again connected with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And it is that the Holy Spirit, who is uh, our first fruits, our guarantor, is also our encourager. Uh, Verse 26, he says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know, know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness, just as our hope in the promises of God sustains us. Uh, Specifically, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us uh, in our prayers. Uh, In the midst of a suffering, uh, sin-saturated world, time and time again, we will find ourselves lost for words, unable to pray, uh, overcome by the needs that we see whether it's in our own lives, our own situations, our own circumstances, or in the lives of the people we know, or the world around us. And yet into that silence, that's when the Holy Spirit speaks. He knows what we do not know, and he intercedes for us himself. The scriptures tell us that Christ, as our great high priest, is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We're going to look at that in part next week. At God's right hand, we have one intercessor, Christ. In our hearts, we have another, the Holy Spirit, who sustains us with his prayers.
How does he pray for us? Paul tells us that the church which is groaning in the midst of a groaning world is prayed for by a groaning spirit. Verse 26, the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that the words cannot express. Uh, His groans are wordless. They're they're beyond human speech. Uh, Speech can't even uh, begin to uh, to encompass them. Uh, And yet those uh, groans are real. They're groans that are in sympathy with a hurting world and a hurting church. Groans that are eagerly longing for that day when the full freedom of God will be revealed. And those groans don't go unnoticed, says Paul. For he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Even though the Spirit's prayers are unexpressed in human language, because the Spirit intercedes in line with the Father's will, the Father hears and responds. When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit himself prays. And the Father answers. Uh, some years ago, uh, David Watson, who was a, a vicar in the, uh, about 30 years ago now, uh, said this. Uh, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They'd be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. It's always been the Christian experience. It was when the church was founded. It's been so throughout church history, and it continues today. Uh, life is not easy. Uh, Being a Christian doesn't inoculate us from the pain of living in a broken world. Uh, And we're fools if we think that it will do. Uh, David Watson himself sadly died of cancer at a tragically young age, despite many people praying for him. He had a great ministry, led many to faith in the Lord Jesus. Many people prayed for him uh, for his healing. Yet he died. Uh, We should not be surprised when life is not what we might hope it to be. And yet... As Christians, we have a wonderful hope, a hope to look forward to, a certain hope of resurrection and renewal with the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be those who are eagerly awaiting the renewal of our bodies, and yet at the same time waiting patiently, trusting in the sovereign plan of God, because suffering and glory is the normal experience of God's church. I came across a story this week uh, of a vicar who uh, was visiting a teenager in his church who was in hospital. He spent most of his life in and out of hospital. Uh, He'd had an accident when he was very, very small, uh, which had damaged his back and meant that he was constantly needing treatment for it. Uh, And the vicar, it's a true story, the vicar was was amazed by uh, the teenager's uh, faith. And he asked him, really, what sustained him in those dark days when he was in hospital facing uh, another operation? And the reply that the teenager gave to him uh, was this. Well, God's got all of eternity to make it up to me. God's got all of eternity to make it up to me. Uh, there is someone, I think, who knows uh, the pain of living in an imperfect world and yet balances it with the real hope of the life to come. We can't always know why God allows us to suffer, why he allows the world to suffer but we can know that he is at work renewing his creation and one day we will enjoy life with him in that creation. And our present sufferings, however bad they might be, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That is the note of the Christian life. Hope. Hope. Yes, now. Difficulty, yes. But hope of life with God in the future, in his new creation. Suffering now, but glory to come. Let's pray.
God, we read these words of Paul and uh, all of us will know something of the frustration of living in our broken world. We know that creation is good and yet it's tainted, tainted by uh, sin. And it almost seems too good to be true when Paul tells us that what we suffer now uh, cannot bear comparison with what awaits. But it's true. We believe him as he speaks. Uh, We pray now that you would... uh, grow in us that patient eagerness, that faith that trusts you in your sovereignty, even if we don't always understand, uh, but looks forward with eagerness to that day when, you, when your son will return and creation will be renewed. Uh, help us, we pray, especially uh, when we are in difficult times, to hold on to these promises. Uh, may we be people who know that truth, patient uh, eagerness, the hope that is to come, now and forever. Amen. Let's remain in the prayer, shall we, as uh, Janet continues to lead us.